We also do this uh, nice sherry decanter. It's cut glass, and it comes complete with six glasses on a silver-plated tray that your butler could uh, bring you in and serve you drinks on. And it's really only cost £4.95. pence. People say to me, how can you sell this for such a low price? I say, because it's total crap. Um, uh, it's no point beating around the bush. Anyway, uh, it's April 1991. Gerald Ratner has just given what is probably the most infamous business speech of all time. He had been asked to speak at the Institute of Directors annual conference at the Royal Albert Hall in London in front of 6,000 people. He considers it an honour. The other speakers include President Leclerc of South Africa, who is ending apartheid. Ratner runs the biggest jewellery company in the world. The Ratner Group has 2,500 shops, 25,000 staff and accounts for half of all jewellery sales in the UK. The day before the speech, Ratner reported annual profits of £125 million. But things will never be the same again. Of course, President de Klerk made a marvellous speech, so I was glad I got there early because he, he, he was ending apartheid. You know, he, he was saying that he's looking forward to his fast bowlers running up and bowling, bouncers at our batsmen and stuff like that. It was a great speech. But it wasn't President de Klerk ending apartheid, which is quite a big thing after all those years, uh, that made the front pages the next day. It was somebody who uh, made a joke about a sherry decanter. So it was, uh, it, it was a turning point in my life, really, because uh, up until then, everything was going fantastically well. After that, everything went fantastically badly. You're listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick podcast which takes a second look at business stories from the past and asks did they really happen the way we think they did and what can we learn from them today we look at success stories failures personalities deals and more in this episode we will look at a remarkable corporate catastrophe and how one company and its boss saw their world transformed by a speech one that became so famous that criticising your own brand and product became known as doing a Ratner. A year after this speech, Ratner Group went on to make a loss of £100 million amid tumbling sales. Not long after, Ratner was out as boss and the name of the company was changed. So tell me about the speech. The comments that you made, they were written and prepared and from what I've heard you say before, they had been seen by your fellow directors. They'd been seen by consultants. And actually, it had been suggested to you that you put in some more light-hearted comments into the speech. That's exactly right, because I'm not... I'm a bit of... A, I was a bit autocratic, to say the least, so I didn't really consult directors. But because this was a big thing, and I quite liked the speech, I sent a draft to all the directors asking them for comments. Basically maybe they could come up with something to improve it a bit. And nobody came back other than Mr. Hussain, who was one of the directors, a very important director. And I've never really uh, 
held it against him because he couldn't have imagined that his suggestion would have had that effect. But he came back and said that it's missing some jokes because at that time, the draft, I wasn't planning on making any jokes, including the sherry decanter and the, the prawn sandwich one. And he came back, he says, yeah, they love you for your jokes. You're like, oh, it's too serious. So I said, well, the joke that always goes down well is the one where we sell a pair of gold earrings for under a pound, same price as a Marks and Spencer's prawn sandwich. But I have to say the sandwich will probably last longer than the earrings. He says, well, put that in. I said, they, and I would probably have got away with it if I'd have just left it at that. And I said, the other joke that I've always used, it's been in the press and uh, it's the sherry decanter one where uh, we sell a sherry decanter on a silver plated tray with uh, six glasses that your butler can serve you drinks on. And it only costs £4.95. How do we sell it for such a low price? Uh, because it's total crap. Um, not particularly funny. Uh, although they did laugh on the day. Nobody thought anything suspicious. Because they'd already said that we've achieved 50% of the market by selling quality products that uh, sold by highly trained staff at aggressively low prices with a lot of marketing to throw into it. Uh, so, you know, in that context, which of course was never picked up by the press, it was just a, a one particular line, but obviously it was a mistake to call any of any of your products crap. You, you say there that they'd worked well in the past. So these these were things that you'd said before, and and, and yeah. nothing had happened really. Yeah, even my greatest nemesis, the Sun, printed them saying under the Gerald's Gems, he's well known for making jokes, and printed that particular one. But I think the difference was now that we were in a recession. And the press were looking for scapegoats rather like they were doing in the banking crisis with Fred Goodwin sort of thing. Everyone's happy when everything's going well in the 80s, the late 80s, and, uh, you know, it's cheeky chappy and all that sort of stuff. But when people can't pay their electricity bills, then they tend to lose their um, sense of humour, a bit like at the moment, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, I've used those jokes before, and I, I actually held my hands up. Says me right for using regurgitating old jokes. I should have cut the new ones, but yeah, it was a joke. Uh, and if you listen to the whole speech, which you can do on YouTube, it was totally out of context. It was a joke, a self-deprecating one. But of course, the press, and I'm not blaming the press because probably if I were the editor of the Daily Mirror, I'd do the same thing. But they're very disingenuous. Uh, and the next day, it was all about. I have contempt for my customers and that everything that I sell is crap, all my jewellery is crap, which is stuck on Twitter to this day. Just a bit like maybe Marie Antoinette maybe never said, you know, let them eat cake. I don't know. But uh, I never said uh, that jewellery is crap. It was one item which we'd inherited when we bought H. Samuel. The rest is folklore. When did you know that there might be an issue? Because as you said, during the speech... The, the line got a big laugh, and I think you got a round of applause as well. When did you realise that some people had not taken it as a joke? Well, actually, it's quite a long time because, uh, as you say, everybody in the hall, 6,000 people, laughed, applauded. Nobody thought anything untoward. You know, speeches, you do go a little bit further. Uh, you are a bit risky in comparison to, you know, if you're doing an interview with the press or something, you know, that's what people expect to be a bit funny and a bit, you know, it's, it's a speech after all. Uh, it's supposed to be entertaining. But then a, a journalist from the Daily Mirror came up to me as I was leaving 
they said, don't you think you're making fun of your customers? And I said, well, no, I wouldn't be doing that. As this is live on, t- is recorded on television, and even if it wasn't, I wouldn't be ever doing that. But uh, that was it. It was then on Sky News about six o'clock, just as I was leaving to go out for dinner with Jeff Randall, who was then the deputy city editor of the Sunday Times with our wives. And they were journalists outside. He informed me they were journalists outside the restaurant. Even then, you know, these things happen. Everyone, you know, you're a high profile. You get a little bit of paparazzi. But... I was getting a bit worried. I I drove to Victoria Station at midnight to get the papers to see what was in it. And uh, there was nothing in the... The only ones that came out at that time at midnight, because Rupert Murdoch had a different way of printing newspapers in those days, so his came out earlier, were The Times and The Sun. There was nothing in The Times, I don't think. The Sun, there was one... It was on the front page, but it was just a narrow column down the side, and it was a quite light-hearted type of thing. Oh, yeah, previously there had been something in the evening standard the day before, which was 20 minutes after my speech, which was because of the fact that we'd, there was an embargo on the speech, but we'd given it to the press. So the evening standard was able to write it 20 minutes after. But that was just really quite positive. But then I went to bed, not thinking anything of it. thought, well, all publicity is good publicity. It was a bit of fun. I think nasty. But then my driver the next day had a miserable face on, and he handed me the two papers, which was The Sun and The Mirror. And to my horror, I couldn't believe it, The Sun had changed from the overnight headline, I suspect because The Mirror were covering it on the front page, the headlines, you 22 karat gold mugs. The Sun changed to Rotner's, and it wasn't only page one, it was page three, five, seven, it went right through and it was pictures of my house. But it was really nasty stuff, which wasn't true. I've never been that sort of snob that, you know, makes fun of people or anything like that. I've always had a reputation being exactly the opposite. Uh, to this day, you know, my staff will always, uh, there's not one of the 25,000 people that I've employed that's ever said anything negative. If you look at Twitter or anything like that, they've always felt, you know, the opposite, even after what happened. But this was, I think Bob Dylan once read something about himself and he says, I'm glad that's not me. <laughs> and that's what I felt like, you know, looking at that, I was glad of not me because they were painting a picture of somebody that wasn't me at all. But there you go. It, it was my own fault for uh, being who I am and taking, you know, that sort of risk, which I always did and being a little bit, you know, crossing the line. But... Even then, I thought it would blow over because looking at the sales figures, they did drop. There's no question. Instead of being 25% up, we were about 5% down. But I thought if we only drop 5% with all this publicity, uh, as time goes on, it's going to slowly creep back. You're but talking about an, an immediate drop there. That's 5% yeah. in the days that followed. Yeah. And only in Ratners. And people forget that Ratners was actually a very small part of the group. 1,000 shops in America. H. Samuel, 500 shops, much bigger than Ratner's. Ernest Jones, Watchers of Switzerland, all the others. Salisbury's, um, although Salisbury's was a non-jewellery business. But the, uh, so, you know, it was only the Ratner's that affected, so it wasn't the unmitigating disaster uh, that it turned out to be at that stage. But then uh, Ratner's, then, you know, 
So there's social media, and it took a while for it to sort of like now it happens like wildfire. It's instant. In those days, everything was very slow. It was over the garden fence, in the pub, in your taxi, on the bus, and it took a while for it to filter through. And as it was t- filtering through, uh, the figures got worse and worse. And then the disaster upon disasters, which was what we were always worried about, is then everybody started saying, well, you know he owns H. Samuel as well. So H. Samuel stopped selling, uh, we were suffering on the top end. We were still selling the low-priced earrings and chains. You know, young girls were buying stuff for fashion and they we're not fussed. But the big thing that you make your money on in the jewellery business is diamond rings. And nobody would buy an engagement ring from Ratner's or Samuel's uh, thinking it was crap because that's what the press said. Even though in that speech I said it was of the highest quality. But Cut a long story short, Instead of making £125 million, uh, well, actually, sorry, the brokers were going for £200 million that year. And by the way, £200 million profit 30 years ago is like, I don't know, billion today. There is no retailer that makes that sort of profit. And there was no retailer to, other than Marks and Spencers that were making those sort of profits. So we were, you know, but instead of making the £200 million, and I joke about it, uh, in my after-dinner speeches, that I go and see the bank. Um, well, it's not the bank manager; it's the chief executive of Barclays Bank, because uh, we'd broken our covenants by now because sales have dropped so much. Uh, but as I joked to him, that we're not going to make the two hundred million; uh, we're going to miss it by three hundred million, and that's what we did. We lost a hundred million uh, pounds because of the fact that completely collapsed and then everybody came to the shops asking for refunds and the brand went toxic and uh, it was the worst year of my life because everything that I built up so successfully was totally unraveled. And the share price went from £4.20 to 2p, is that right? That's right. I'd lost all my money because of that because all my money was just that wasn't, didn't give it a second thought you'd think that was you know you lost all your money people when they're in these financial disasters that's the main thing that people get upset about it wasn't with me I couldn't care less about the money it was my reputation and the fact that my business that I built up was falling apart and I had to lay off all these fantastic staff which I'd hired you know who were very thankful for me for giving them a chance at such a young age To try to stop the slump in sales, Ratner brought in celebrities like Paul Gascoigne and Sharon Davis for a new advertising campaign. He also brought in James McAdam, a Scottish businessman, as his new chairman to work alongside him. But it didn't work. 18 months after his speech, McAdam fired Ratner as chief executive. It was almost a relief because I was seeing such carnage and I was unable to really turn it round but it was still a shock because I didn't see that coming that he'd fired me you know I brought him in to help me but I should have realised and anyway I can't get too annoyed because I'd fired when I bought H. Samuel I brought in the the, we did it it was virtually I persuaded the chairman then it was more like a merger but then I fired him Uh, when I bought Ernest Jones again I didn't fire them, but they resigned. Uh, so, yeah, live by the sword, die by the sword. He wanted to be the guy that, 
you know, brought in as chairman, wanted to be the man that was running it. And with me around, you know, it was always referred to as my business. So, yeah, it was always inevitable he was going to get rid of me. But I was so desperate. that I, And the big mistake you make, you know, in the trouble is you start listening to people and advising them. And often, I don't want to sound paranoid, but people who give you advice often give you advice to suit them, not to suit you. They want you to do something that will be good for them. You know, just like when I brought in this PR guy and brought in a chairman, I shouldn't have listened to people, you know, or, or listened to the right people. Uh, after you left, I think it was about a year after you left, they then also changed the name of, of the company and, and the Ratner's name disappeared. That, that can't have been a nice moment either. No, it was, it was awful because, you know, it wasn't like I'd just come along and uh, got a job running it and then moved on to the next thing. It was the only job I ever had, you know. I started in the business at 15, my father. I loved the business. It was everything to me. Uh, you know, I was born in Richmond uh, above our first shop. My mother served in the shop when she was pregnant with me. So, And I left school early because I always wanted to be in that business. And I was in that business, you know, working in the shop. People, My father used to talk about H. Samuel or something like so important. And they were compared to us. And it was just quite unbelievable that I'd managed to take them over. You know, I was so proud of what I achieved and to lose it all over such a stupid joke. Although I was always warned that they built me up to knock me down the press. So, uh, but I dismissed that somewhat. But yeah, when they changed the name, that was the final nail in the coffin. That was the final insult. But, you know, I was used to all of that. So how was it for you by this point? Because you'd gone from, as you say, one of the biggest business leaders in the UK to then a few years later, you don't have the job and your name's no longer attached to the company. How much did it cost you personally? Well, I'd lost everything because, uh, you know, I had millions and millions of pounds worth of shares. That came to nothing. I then got a tax bill for a million pounds because I had share options. And even though they were worthless, you still had to pay the tax on it because the conversion, you have to pay at the time of the conversion of what the price was when you converted it. So you had to pay a million pound tax bill on something that was worthless, on a, like a capital gain. <laughs> I had to sell the house. I basically lost absolutely everything. And not only did I lose all my money, I lost my reputation. I was like a laughing stock. I couldn't get a job. As the, as the Sunday Times quite nicely put it, I was unemployable. And I was still getting kicked, as I am to this day, for that joke. And so, yeah, if anybody lost anything, it was me, yeah. What, um, what happened next? What, 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 when, when you left the company? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I believed everything was said about me in the press. And I didn't, I didn't do anything for seven years. Gave up. And then my wife threatened to kick me out because of the fact we're building up debts on credit cards and uh, I was just lying in bed all day and get up. But the one thing that was keeping me sane was cycling, which I still do to this day, 25 miles. And I, and I could see the benefits of exercise. I know everybody does talk about nothing else today, but this was 1990. I left in 92 and this was 97. And I was cycling and it, I was really, there was something new to me that I was really quite enjoying. And I was also thinking clearer. And uh, I would, I'd had been prescribed Prozac because I was depressed. But then when I started cycling, I found that much more effective. I know that wouldn't be the case for everybody. You know, some people it does work. 
Prozac, stuff like that. But it didn't work for me, antidepressants. In fact, just when I needed to be sharp, I was sort of dulled by this. Uh, so the cycling was sharpening me up. And I thought I'd like to get into, I can see the benefit of exercise. And there's a lot of people like me that were just discovering it for the first time. So I wanted to open up a health club. Although I didn't have any money, um, found a site. And I thought, well, I'll pay, I'll get rent free, period. And then I was just trying to basically open up on a, on a shoestring by not paying any rent till the fees come in. So I came up with this scheme of actually selling membership before I bought the place. It was in solicitors' hands. And because I got 800 people to sign up to it, because it was the only health club in Henley, there wasn't one. And it was I did an artist drawing with a beautiful swimming pool, outdoor swimming pool and a gym. And it really looked fabulous on paper, even though it didn't exist. But people were convinced it was going to open. I wasn't. But I got 800 people to sign up, and that enabled me basically to bring in finance, to sell it to, to backers. Ratner eventually sold the health club for £3.9 million in 2001. By that time, it had 2,000 members. After years of financial difficulties... He celebrated by going on a skiing holiday, which he describes as his best ever. He went on to set up an online jewellery business called Gerald Online, as well as some other ventures. Today, he does mentoring and public speaking, and still cycles. Then somebody said, well, you must be glad you made your speech that you did. I said, well, what a ridiculous thing to say. I lost everything. You know, I lost my business that built up. It was the most terrible thing. They said, yeah, but you're now got enough money. You're, you're smiling much more than you did. You seem happier. You appreciate stuff much more. Uh, you love doing your speeches. You wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't the thing, if you, if you hadn't made that speech. So I said, well, there is some truth in that. Although I do regret enormously the fact that so many young people lost their jobs. It does show you that, you know, you can make the biggest corporate mistake, lose everything, be humiliated and still think, well, that probably did me some good. I am happier now. One of my friends said the other day, he says, I'm glad you did make that speech because you're much nicer these days than you used to be. And I said, well, I'd rather have been richer and not so nice. But there you go. <laughs> Looking back on the speech, you've mentioned the press and the media a few times did you blame them for what happened no i don't blame the press and you know a friend of mine uh, michael green who's running carlton tv at the time said to me whatever you do don't blame the press because everybody does and it looks stupid the press are what they are uh, you handed it to them on a silver plated platter if you like and you shouldn't have done it and uh, although they've been disingenuous and although everything they've said since has been absolute rubbish and total exaggeration and everybody's picked up from that social media that you shouldn't have said what you said and that that's the bottom line and by and I accept by implication even though I called one item crap that if you call one of your products crap in this you know that people assume everything you said is crap you shouldn't shouldn't have used it although I had used it in 1987 four years before the speech and it was in the press and as I said everybody's seem to think that was my personality that I make self-deprecating jokes but um, I don't blame the press because the press I have learnt is not somewhere where they I'm sorry I know that you 
<laughs> I've spent a lot of time at the Times newspaper, which is my favourite newspaper. But nevertheless, I've never felt that the media is a place that you go to for accuracy. Uh, every time I've ever happened to have an inside track on a particular subject or a person and read about it in the press, it bears no resemblance to what I've happened to know is the truth. They get their, the, the, where they live wrong, the name of their kids wrong, their, how long they've been married wrong, they, what they do wrong. It's just totally made up, and especially the tabloids uh, that do that to make a story. Because basically, if you report it exactly as it is in a totally accurate way, it's quite boring. So, you, you know, it's like telling a, a story in a pub. You have to embroider it. So I accept that, and it was my own fault. And I'm not a bitter person. I, I, I'm not sitting here, you know, saying that they took everything and ruined my life because they didn't. They, in fact, might have improved it because it's I now can deal with problems, whereas in the old days I made a whole big song and dance about it. And everybody is going to have problems in life, you know, and you meet actually somebody who's sailed through life without any setbacks they do lack a certain amount of empathy or sympathy for other people. I think to be part of the human race, you have to have suffered. You were perceived as sneering at customers who was who was struggling. Was there a part of the younger version of you who was? Not at all. I mean, that's a complete fallacy. I was not that arrogant snob that the press painted me as. I never was. I played football on Sunday morning with people who dug the roads and went out for a drink with them. I was the most down-to-earth person. And I never thought by making a joke about a 99p earrings, I mean, what do you expect for 99p? You know, that was the thing. I was being honest about it. Yeah, we sell very expensive stuff. It would last a lifetime. But the 99p, to get it down to 99p, it's not going to last a lifetime. In fact, that joke originally was that I was boasting that the 99p earrings is the same price as Marks and Spencer's sandwich, but would last a lot longer. That's what I originally said. But one of the journalists in the Financial Times, who was at one of my presentations, she turned it round and everybody laughed. So I took it. I thought that was quite funny. So I used that. So I, I, would, I was arrogant in terms of thinking what I could achieve, but I certainly always loved my customers and would 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 just was totally mortified that I would upset them in any way. Looking back at the speech now, more than 30 years later, you can clearly see that after Ratner spoke, the company ran into big problems. But there was also a recession at the time, and other retailers had been struggling too. Was it just a matter of time before Ratner's got hit by the downturn? Has history overplayed the impact of the speech? Or was it central to what happened? That's a, a very intelligent question that is very rarely asked. People assume that it was the speech that was the, was the cause of everything. But there was no question whatsoever that our balance sheet was not great. We'd done a lot of acquisitions, which has proved over the years that were worth getting into debt for. But when interest rates had gone up, and that's what always been, gets me today, when everybody's moaning about interest rates at 3 or 4%, we had interest rates of 15%, and we were highly geared. 
and uh, America that year, which was totally unaffected by the speech, half the company, uh, instead of making 110 million, they made it 10 million. So they collapsed. But the beauty of America is that they go into recession very quickly and very deeply, and they come out of it very quickly. Uh, we don't. Watch of Switzerland was unaffected. Ernest Jones was unaffected. H. Samuel absolutely was affected and Ratner's was mortally affected. So it was highly damaging on top of the fact that we were going through a difficult time. But would we have made the 200 million that year that the brokers were going for? Not in a million years. That was the year that we were going to stop this incredible growth. It was, we were going to hit the buffers. I don't know how much of it was the speech and how much was the uh, recession, but um, I certainly could have done without the uh, speech. They loved the brand. They absolutely adored the brand. And the fact that I personally had all this publicity prior to the speech and people forget, and that is the reason why it was so bad, the publicity was so bad, because I had courted the press and I was so high profile, but that was helping the Ratner's shops enormously because they were punching above their weight. But when this whole story came out, it wasn't that we sell one item that is crap. It's that everything we sell is crap. That's what uh, the press said and that's what people believed. And when a girl... The best advertising you can get is when a young girl has just got engaged and she goes back to the office and she shows all her friends her engagement ring on her finger and... Before the speech, she would say, I got it from Ratner's. And people say, oh, it's fabulous, you know. They're the, they're the biggest jewellers. They're the best jewellers. After the speech, she's, you no way could anyone say that I bought my engagement with Ratner's because somebody would say, well, it's crap. So it's as simple as that. And by the way, if I was in any other trade, this would not have happened. It's only the jewellery uh, that this would relate to because of the fact that jewellery is unbranded and it's the name above the shop, and that jewellery is a prestigious item. So many lessons and studies have been done about Ratner's and the speech, and lessons tried to learn from it today, and you know, CEOs now think often they can't criticise their business in public or be as open and as honest as they might be. When you're doing your after-dinner speeches and you're doing your mentoring, what lessons do you say should be learnt from what happened? I think that I don't need to tell people now that you cannot say anything you can't, that could be interpreted in any way, shape or form, uh, which is not saying other than everything is in this world is wonderful, which is sad in a way because it does mean that us as consumers of the media are faced with people saying absolutely nothing, giving us palliatives and, uh, you know, you're going to get the sort of oven-ready PR speak um, rather than what people really think about things. You can't give any opinion. People are too scared. So that's out there, and I probably would take some credit for causing that, but it's a ridiculous state of affairs that people are going to pick you up on anything that you say. So I don't really give them advice PR. They wouldn't take it anyway from me. Uh, but what I do say is that what doesn't, kill you strengthens you and I have I can deal with life and I can deal with business because I've been through a very very hard time it helps you enormously and you see these sort of snowflakes that you know the first thing interest rates goes up a couple of 
percent they're already like lemmings about it i mean that is as we both read the book the the, the road less travel life is difficult but if you accept that it's no longer difficult what what have you learned over the years because your that speech your life takes two goes in two different directions after that in in terms of if you did or did not give that speech, when, when you look back now and, and you think about everything that's happened, what what have you learned? How have you changed? The sliding doors uh, moment, yeah. If if Mr. Sane hadn't come in my office and said it needs a couple of jokes, um, I might have not been uh, as happy as I am today because I'd already been divorced and I've always found it difficult to balance family life with business life because business is so intoxicating that it tends to take you over at the cost of everything else. But since now I have more balanced life and been happily married for 31 years and I'm more relaxed about things, there's not trying to beat brokers' forecasts the whole time and, you know, obsessed about business. And when I do go out to a dinner party or something, I'm interested in what person next to me has to it's not all about me and I prefer believe it or not traveling on the train like I did today than driving around in a chauffeur driven Bentley so yeah my life has taken on a totally different turn because of it but I made the most of it I've still got an issue with the fact that as I was coming here today in the Times your old paper Matt Chorley's misquoted me saying, you know, that I said everything I said is crap. It happens. And, it, you know, I'm sitting on the train. I think, oh, God, you know, what do I need this for? And, um, and then Twitter every day when everybody screws up, they mention me. So I'm painted as the poster boy to, of failure to this day. The fact that I built the world's largest jewelers, the fact that I built the biggest online jeweler, you know, in the turn of the century. I was online before... People even thought it was a good idea and, and left when it sort of became very expensive to be online. In fact, I, you know, I had a very successful health club at Self 3. You know, I built quite a few businesses very successfully, but I'm the poster boy for failure because of the sherry decanter. So I live with that. Uh, everybody's got a certain ego. But, you know, the trouble is that we paint heroes and we paint villains but we're all somewhere in between the two. You know, it isn't black and white like that. We're human beings. We're not robots. You know, Liz Truss is going to screw up. Boris Johnson is going to screw up. You know, and if Keir Starmer gets in, which he will do, he'll screw up. Um, because that's what we do. Um, we There's no superheroes. Or, or, you know, there's a few supervillains. But, you know, people are painted the whole time as such when they're not. Well, on that now, well, you touched on this already, but one of the legacies of 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 the business you built is that Watches of Switzerland is still listed here in in London. It's worth more than one point five billion. Signet in the US is worth more than two point five billion, and H Samuel, as you've touched on, how does that make you feel that those businesses are still going, still succeeding, and are the size they are? Well, it's quite annoying in a way that <laughs> I'm not. I don't own them. Because there's no question that if I were still running it, they'd be that size, maybe even bigger, because actually, if anything, the growth has, has gone down since I've left. Watch was in a fabulous business. We had, you know, to have role agencies for Rolex is like printing money, and that was something that we had, and which we wouldn't lose. They were solid, good businesses, which is so not what people 
when they write about me say. You know, I look at a house that I used to own that is now worth 90 million quid, which I sold, I had to sell, you know, for a million pounds because I needed the money. Uh, there's lots of stories like that. People say, you know, is it a bittersweet moment? Your old company's still doing well. You had houses in Mayfair, Highgate, on the river in Bray. You don't own those anymore. Is it bittersweet? Well, no, because I've, you know, I've accepted that I've paid a big price for that joke. Although I have lost all of those things, my life, I've got nothing to complain about compared to most people. I've got a very nice life today. And I don't know whether I would have had all that money, all those houses, and not been happy because it's a very difficult thing to achieve. And it's basically to appreciate what you've got. And you don't need, you know, huge amount of possessions. It then becomes, you know, just self-gratification. You don't need all of those things to be happy. And I'm happy uh, with what I've got in my businesses today or my my income is nothing like what it used to be. But in some way, I, you know, because I appreciate it much more, it does make you happy. And that's really all that matters. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to read more about Gerald Ratner's story or learn about other business catastrophes, please check out our sister publication, Off to Lunch, on Substack, where you can find bonus content for every podcast episode. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com and receive business news and analysis throughout the week.